Hi, this is Sam Ramsey, and you're listening to Open Source Data. This week, we have Demetrius Brinkman. He's the main organizer of the MLOps community and currently resides in a small town outside Frankfurt, Germany. He's an avid traveler who taught English as a second language to see the world and learn about new cultures. Brinkman fell into the machine learning operations world and since has interviewed leading names around MLOps, data science, and machine learning. When he is not conducting interviews, you can find him making stone stackings with his daughter in the woods or playing the ukulele by the campfire. Welcome, Demetrius. You built a pretty awesome community. I appreciated your humility. You're like, hey, do I need to re- rebrand MLOps to LLMOps? And everybody's like, no, 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 you're, you're on brand. You're doing great. So it's like, that was a nice thing to witness. Yeah. It's funny because the reason that came up too was I think so many VCs feel like they got burnt by MLOps a little bit because that market didn't blossom like they thought it was going to. And I imagine you've talked to your fair share of VCs too. But now, nobody gets funded if they say they're an MLOps tooling company or just an MLOps company. And Mm -hmm. it started, I would say, like in 2021, the end of 2021. I know a few people that went out to raise and they were going to do things in the ML ops space, but it wasn't like it was super novel or super different than what was already out there. And so they didn't get funding. And then all of a sudden, the next thing you know, you start to hear rufflings of, yeah, like the best company out there, their ARR is still pretty low in the ML ops space. And so I won't name names or say who, who is what, but Because of that, everybody that goes to raise money right now, I think, says that they're an LLM ops company so that they can get money. And there are some differences, I would say, but that's why I always laugh now that LLM ops is the new hot thing. I find it fascinating, too, how (laughs) I had one VC say to me, like, yeah, we were thinking about sponsoring your hackathon you're doing, but one of the partners mentioned that They didn't like the name and our name is MLOps community. And so it's like, oh man, that's the most VC thing I've heard in a while. It's just the name, everything else. We were doing a hackathon on LLMs, but the name, they were like, can we change that? And that's why I kind of make a joke out of it. Should I rebrand myself? Do we need to change the name of the community? And one thing I was going to mention too, somebody in the community bought the domain LLMops.community in homage to mlops.community and they just redirected it to mlops.community. Nice. Yeah. That's cool. Well, you're future-proofing the whole system. Yeah, It's funny though, because we don't call it AI ops, but when you take a longer view, right, what are we trying to do when we smush ops onto something? The DevOps inspiration is pretty clear, but DevOps had a huge benefit of being at the tail end of literally decades of practice mm-hmm. of how you write applications, which are more like recipes than they are like training sets. And how do you march them through the process of production? How do you apply lean manufacturing? How do you take out a lot of steps? How do you reduce the cycle time and the error rate? All of those things make perfect sense. And it was interesting for me to see data ops and ML ops pop up in the 2010s because they were actually extremely new disciplines. And they weren't coming off of decades of kind of that lean approach. They're new communities doing new things. And so, as you pointed out, there was a lot of venture capital and startup enthusiasm. Lots of MLOps companies got built. But then trying to build a product 
against a community of practice that is actually in a high rate of flux is really hard. Who do you sell to? What is so the good. toil that lots and lots of people are doing over and over again? Yeah. And so it was very early for lots of MLOps companies. Probably the next wave ends up being a stronger wave commercially because the practices start to settle down. I suspect LLMs will end up being the compressing force that starts to make this stuff look a little bit more standard, be a little bit more mainstream because so many more people are interested in dealing with ML in production. It's fascinating you say this idea of there's not really a standardized way of doing it. There's not the recipes really and everybody's ML stacks and the way that they did ML were completely different. Actually, I have like a half written blog post from back in the day of how there was something that got popular in the data world, which was like the modern data stack. And you saw some people starting to say, well, what's the modern ML stack? And I was very adamant about how there is not going to be a modern ML stack because you have so many different types of ML. And even the modern data stack, I feel like is a great marketing play. And it's not necessarily realistic when you look at what people are doing in the data world. But if you look at something like a recommender system versus robotics use cases, those are both ML, but they're both vastly different. And so it just goes back to your point on that recipe, those cookbooks aren't quite there. And those years of practice haven't been baked and the maturity isn't there. And so we don't know who we're selling to in the MLOps space or the companies don't. And it's not super clear. And I think almost you still have it in the LLM space because a lot of what I've been thinking about these days and I love talking about with people is how there's been a whole new unlock of software developers who now can use AI and ML that never knew what ML was or never wanted to touch it back in the day because they just didn't see the need for it. And now all of a sudden, they are getting this unlock. And so when you're building an LLM ops tool, if we want to call it that, who are you building it for? Is it for that data scientist? Is it for the ML engineer? Is it for a software developer? There's still a lot of that. And the last thing I'll say, which I think you probably know better than anybody, is how much we can easily conflate ML ops or even LLM ops or even DevOps with tools. And I think DevOps does a great job of just saying, no, it's not only tools, it's practices, it's a culture. And we were very vocal about that in MLOps, but it's just so easy to see those big landscape things that the VCs put out and say, look, here's all of the different MLOps tooling things, and then that's MLOps. But that's not what it is. There's so much more to it than that. And in DevOps, you still have that, and it's very clear. And we try to bring that to MLOps and trying to bring that to LLM ops too. I think you're exactly right. There's a certain fantasy in bringing well-known patterns from the 2000s and wanting to recreate markets in the future that look just like them. But of course they don't for a couple of really important reasons. One is computation and cognition are different universes. And what we're used to in application stacks, right? Lamp stack, this idea of a set of stacks that developers use that are mostly undifferentiated once you grab the whole thing. And whether that's 
React and whatever you need below that, whether that's PHP back in the day and whatever you need below that. They tend to be fairly consistent. You know how those communities move. You know the developer to target. You even know what they're using, what kind of app they're building, almost certain. Then you take this huge, uncomfortable leap into cognitive computing, right? Any range of ML or LLMs. And really you're saying like, what's your math stack? Well, I don't know. The universe is full of math. What kind of math do you want to do? What's your physics stack? It just becomes a little bit nonsensical. So what I think we're all doing is wrestling through the darkness with our hands, just trying to figure out like, what is the shape of the future? And that's really, really hard. And we have to do it as a community, which is something that I really admire about you, having built not only the data on Kubernetes community, which I got to hang out in briefly in the early days. I think it's super impressive where that's gone, but even more so like you threw yourself completely into ML ops and everybody appreciates the platform you built, right? They respect you deeply. They recommend you constantly. And you've created a really neat place for people to share ideas openly with each other. And I think that's the power that moves us forward. Well, you're far too kind. The great thing about the data on Kubernetes is we have our shared friend, Patrick, who helped me immensely back in those days to learn so much about Kubernetes and its capabilities, its downfalls, how it's evolving. And that foundation and seeing that and seeing how strong the culture was there, it really helped me when I was crossing over to MLOps because it's true, there is still that foundation of DevOps that you can bring to MLOps, but you're sprinkling data on it, you're sprinkling the compute on it, you're sprinkling these new variables into the recipe that change it enough to where it can't be the same thing and you can't do the exact same thing, but you can still stand on the shoulders of giants. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the, one of the giant sets of shoulders we stand on is everybody who built Kubernetes, I think. And it was fascinating to me in 2017 at Google, one of the original Kubernetes product managers and one of the sharpest engineers that you'll find as well teamed up and ended up inventing something called Kubeflow because they were like, all right, so what are the types of workloads that really need Kubernetes? They're like, well, data scientists and ML ops people are super underserved, like standing up a cluster. Who do they talk to? How much compute do they need? They don't know. Like, how can you simplify that part of the process? So we continue on this journey that I think is the true heart of any discipline when you put ops on it, which is to unify the team. What we did with DevOps was we said, you can't have developers on a high plateau Mm. and QA and a ghetto, and then operations people off in a dark data center who nobody talked to. Mm -hmm. That's a recipe for suffering. And just like Conway said, in Conway's law, the structures of software tend to replicate the structures of communication between teams. If you want to build better software, have better communication between teams. So we unified that. We said, if you're going to separate QA, first you have to do test-driven development, but you have to put QA in the team. You can't separate ops either. You have to put that in the team. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that's unclear to me, and I'm super interested to understand from your perspective. Are you starting to see that mashing together of different people, different attitudes, different histories, different competencies into an MLOps team mm-hmm. or now into an LLOps team? Or is that a little bit over the horizon? A hundred percent. Potentially, they're not calling it an MLOps team, but the term that I think is the most frequently used is an ML platform team. So mm-hmm. like platform engineers are probably what I would consider the MLOps team 
And I find it fascinating because sometimes you'll see job postings come through the community and it will say that they want an MLOps engineer. And I think that is hilarious because what is an MLOps engineer? It's so audacious to me to think that someone is going to be able to do everything from data engineering to monitoring a model in production. And oh yeah, by the way, they can also just do a little deep learning in there too while they're at it. And that's ridiculous to me. And that's what I think people get a little bit caught up and they think, oh yeah, MLOps is a thing. Let's get an MLOps engineer. And this guy, Ewan, from the community, he gave a presentation probably a year and a half ago. And he talked about how for him, the biggest unlock that MLOps has had is the platform team in all its different facets. So you have the data engineer, you have the ML engineer, you have the data scientist, you have DevOps. That whole team now can speak the same language. Whereas before it was very if you look at it like a rainbow of colors on a page, you have the data engineer who's red and the DevOps engineer who's blue and then the data scientist who's purple and the ML engineer who's yellow or whatever. And he was saying, now it's more like a gradient. It's not so clearly defined that you have these roles of, oh, this person only does this and then they throw it over the fence to the next person. And that is super cool to think about. I think the teams and the companies that are doing it the best they understand that and they're able to let the individuals choose where they want to go deep and have the vision of all of it. So you're on that ML platform team, but if you're feeling especially interested in the data science part, then you can go deeper down that rabbit hole. But you also are on the team, so you understand the scope of the whole thing. That is a beautiful description of cultural innovation that's needed. That's what cultural mm. innovation looks like, is sort of more understanding of gradient and more fluidity and understanding that we are each individually beings in time. Just because you're great at this thing doesn't mean that we should concretize all of that work around you forever. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons we come to this industry, I think, as people is because we get paid to learn. Yeah. And so that means some movement, not just getting deep, right? A bunch of us like to go wide, yep. or maybe you go wide enough to go deep in something else. I was lucky enough to meet one of the keynote speakers at Glucon about a month and a half ago, Joe Chalkman, who's starting a company called Grounded AI. And he was one of the core SREs for YouTube, right? Oh, so nice. we're like coming out of a hardcore ops environment, right? An ops programming, site reliability, engineering system. And now it's all about what do you do to make sure that LLMs are doing the right things? He was, he's going strongly into LLM ops, as well as grounding, making sure that they can know when they're faking things yeah. and that those, that fakery can be brought back in. But he's coming off of a great community of practice, but now he's broadening, right? So that, that cultural innovation, the fluidity that suggests, hey, LLM ops is coming as a real thing, not just something we named, right? If I call a mouse a bird, it doesn't fly. So just naming a thing doesn't make it so. But I love what you just described about this sort of gradient and the fluidity of understanding of jobs to be done across that spectrum. That is so important with the LLMs and the reliability aspect of it. But I will also just mention that as a caveat to the last piece, I've talked to a lot of these platform teams, the ML platform teams, especially once you get to a certain size, that the platform team is servicing their internal customers and their internal customers tend to be data science teams. It's like a gigantic data science team 
Not as much those data analytics engineers because they play in a different field on the data team. But I still haven't found like the best maturity level of what is the perfect ML maturity way to do it. And I think each company has their own flavor of doing it. And it's obvious that it's really working for them. So I tend to like to read those blogs. Like in my opinion, DoorDash, they've got an incredible ML platform and their team is is amazing in what they do. And depending on the size, I think that all goes out the window, what I was saying, where you have the data scientists is on the platform team, but maybe you get someone that moves horizontal and says, okay, I've played enough in the data science realm. Now I want to go play in the platform realm. So that's a little bit of a caveat to the last thing I was saying. I think rotation is really powerful. It's an important part of a healthy culture also. When we were rebuilding the cloud platform team at Autodesk in 2018, 2019, the idea emerged from whatever, a thousand people or so that were in the organization. We would like to learn new things. And so we tackled this exact thing. And rotation ended up being a really nice cultural norm. Someone who wants to rotate over to this team. Okay, that's, that's a process. So do that in about three months, this thing will be done. And here's classes you're going to need to take. Okay, great. You're good to go. Super cool. Yeah, the empathy that builds is incredible. That's exactly it. So the, I, I learned from Liz Fong Jones, who's now at Honeycomb, and from Melody McFessel, who's now the CEO of Observable, when I got to work with both of them and learn from them at Google. But they said the secret of DevOps is actually no grumpy humans. Yeah. So it's all about that empathy <laughs> at the core. It's not necessarily ruinous empathy where you've got emotional contagion and you don't know where your boundaries are and how you feel. But just starting with, hey, we're all humans trying to do a job together. What, what's the minimum viable platform for us to be able to work together? Well, we need to have a certain level of empathy for each other's work. And yeah. then the more that we can learn, maybe rotate, the more that we can take care of the whole system. Over. Oh, that's so good. Google didn't get to their 5.9 operation by accident. Mm -hmm. I got to observe a very mature culture yeah. in the year and a half I was there. So it was super. Yeah. So going to the future, I'm really curious what you're seeing in the LLM use cases, right? You're kind of in the thick of ML ops. I think almost every board of a company has sent an email to their CEO, which has turned into what we know is, you know, it rolls downhill. And probably everybody who's even remotely close to AI in any context, whether they're doing analytics AI, Maybe they're just doing data engineering and don't think of themselves as an AI person, but they have to create real-time pipelines. They're all feeling yeah. this frenzy of, yeah, but I need a real-time chatbot that understands law of the languages and knows exactly what's happening in the CRM system yeah. and that we can use to like write SQL and create instant satisfaction with hundreds of millions of customers without adding any personnel. Yeah. That's a hard place to be. But the good news is, right, LLMs are at least giving us something to talk about. So... Yeah, I'm curious to see what you're seeing in terms of production use cases. I'm fascinated by the area. and I've started spending all of my time looking at what does it mean to have computational capability for language because mm -hmm. I think that's the big unlock here. Yeah. Well, first of all, the hype is real. And I think that is very clear to everyone that has ever logged on to Twitter in the last six months. In my eyes, it's a little unbearable sometimes because it's just so much that you recognize there's clearly Twitter demos and then there's actual production use cases that go through some of this rigor that you were talking about and especially 
the reliability aspects, the availability, just if you're betting some of your new AI capabilities on OpenAI's API, and then all of a sudden they update the model and all of your prompts go AWIRE, that is a little bit of a vulnerability, we could say. So there's a lot of new vectors that you have to think about. But as far as use cases go, we just did a survey in the MLOps community and we recorded responses from like March till end of May. And we took that snapshot. We had 120, 130 people that gave us responses about if they were using LLMs in production or if they weren't and why they weren't, what their headaches were. And we open sourced all the responses. So anyone that wants to go and sift through that, you can. I highly encourage it for anyone that is doing anything in this space or if you're thinking about doing something in this space because I think my favorite joke these days is just to talk about how hard the product managers have it right now. Because like you said, every single person is probably going to them and saying, let's just put some AI on this. Let's do something with AI. To me, that is one of the most powerful trigger words. Like when I hear somebody say just, yeah, couldn't you just? Like that yeah. tells me you have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> that is like the incompetence flag. And often culturally, it speaks to like bullying and pressure, right? I want this thing. I'm going to shake the tree hard. I'm going to make you feel small by saying, well, just do this. Easy. Like, it's just okay. an API call, <laughs> right? These days now, it's just an API call. We can just sort it out with OpenAI and they'll do all the work and maybe we'll get some agents to sort us out. The, the good news the, is the calls are coming in and people want yeah. new features. And I think that's the hardest thing to do in, technical, in technology markets is to raise expectations create yeah. new hopes of what's possible, and then could rush in and try to fill those expectations with all your new work. So while it's hard to be a product manager, it's also glorious to be a product manager because you can yeah. stop and say, oh my gosh, I don't have to worry about where I'm moving a button or my mm -hmm. absolute site analytics today. I can start to think about a completely different user experience. What's a conversation yeah. experience? Where do I want to go with it? So that's I love this idea of is the conversation experience the pinnacle of what we're doing and because if there's so much that isn't optimized for just a chatbot like experience right and i think notion is doing a great job just as an easy one to point out where they're giving you these point and clicks instead of having to figure out prompts on your own and try and optimize prompts and i don't know about you but i get a little anxious when i'm met with, did I do that prompt correctly? Maybe if I just swap these words and then you swap the words again and then $200 later, you're like, ah, I don't know if this is actually better than if I just wrote it myself. And so <laughs> there's a lot of those questions and that is a little bit of why I think there's other interfaces that are probably going to become more and more prominent. But going back to the original question, because I digress a little bit on the use cases, uh, what I was calling niche chatbots are one of the strongest use cases that you see. And so I think that's pretty clear to everyone, right? Like the chat with your data or connect it to a few data sources or my CRM or it's a native CRM app. I know HubSpot did this. And I think Salesforce even is doing this. Everybody's trying to incorporate it into their offering. The idea on Niche chatbots, I think the most novel ones that I saw from the survey were 
when a chatbot would prompt a human as opposed to the human prompting the chatbot. So you can think about this as you have your steps that you're taking in a workflow and the chatbot would ask you if you remembered to do XYZ or if you thought about whatever it may be. So you are becoming better. It's almost like you have this LLM coach. And in that way, it's not necessarily like this is an LLM in production that an end user is getting that's not outside the business or that is outside the business. It's more like internally, you can think about maybe it's an accountant and the accountant is filing my taxes for the year. And as they're filing them, the LLM is prompting them on different tax laws that maybe they weren't thinking about or different ways that they could file things. And so that's one. And shout out to the people at Digits who are doing that. I know that the, there's uh, a guy in the community, Hannes, who's thinking deeply about that. And he's bringing that into the accounting experience because they're a tool for accountants. And so that was one novel one that I thought was fascinating. And you can think about that to lawyers lawyers who have to argue certain cases along their workflow or they have to bring certain things to the table along their workflow. And this niche chatbot is prompting them with questions about maybe there's holes that they're not thinking about. Or, I mean, I imagine you saw the news, maybe they're just hallucinating new cases altogether and then those lawyers get disbarred. So use at your own risk. And that was one of the biggest things in the survey was hallucinations are a really big problem and they pose a very big danger for companies. And so figuring out those is a big thing. But again, going back to the second novel use case that I found absolutely incredible was being able to get managers who oversee many different projects up to speed really quickly on the developments of projects. So having a chatbot that a manager can talk to and ask questions about the project then the managers don't have to bug the people that are actually working on it. And those people can have their peace and quiet and let the manager talk with the chatbot to get all up to speed. And if it doesn't get the answer it needs, then it can go to the human. That's a really cool use case. I'm actually hacking on something specifically that does that with a stand-up interface with a few friends. And if it's useful, we'll open source it. But that core idea, of it's a conversation. If it's prompting you, it gets you in better shape. So it's this interactive psychological journey that you have in a conversation, but that you don't expect with a chatbot. Mm -hmm. Chatbot's such an old term, right? I go to AT&T, pops up, says, can I do anything for you? I'm like, show me my bill. It's very programmatic. It's not dialogue, right? It doesn't interact with me. It doesn't change my mind. Mm -hmm. But the really interesting thing about these LLM experiences to me is this interactivity, it's almost like it creates knowledge for me feels like I'm creating knowledge for it. So it's a different fundamental experience than chat, I think, when done right. Yeah. I mean, that was probably the biggest use case. There were a few other use cases in there like coding. Obviously, lots of people are doing stuff with coding. And I think one thing is clear since the end of that survey is that text to SQL has proven itself as something that is real, like LLMs can do that. The other stuff is a little hit or miss sometimes, but text to SQL is a very strong use case. And so you're seeing lots of tools that are coming out and leveraging that. And I think that is awesome to think about and figure out if 
there's room to add that into your product or how you can level up different engineers with that capability. And so we wrote a report, basically a TLDR for the people who don't want to go through all of the different responses. And we picked out what some of the biggest and most common themes that kept coming up in this survey. One of the things that's great about the report, and everybody who's listening to this should go read it, is this very evocative and to me, fundamentally true phrase, the AI landscape experiences the passage of time faster than your family's golden retriever. (laughs) So like dog years are slow. I feel like if I don't read Ben's Bites every day, and if you're not signed up for the Ben's Bites newsletter, you should. If I don't read it every day, I already feel behind. And I often find that by Wednesday, I'm still not caught up on the new hacks that came out over the weekend. So progress is really high. But also, it's a really good sign that a lot of the naive use cases are going away. Mm -hmm. Things that could just be like kind of a thin shell that's just calling GPT API. All right, that's interesting. Hopefully that's useful for you. Is that going to be what you do at production? Probably Mm -hmm. not. Prototyping service is great. We're starting to see adversarial architectures where you have LLMs checking each other to do some level of clamping, right? To be able to create some hysteresis on sort of security vulnerabilities, right? If you're trying to attack it with prompt injection. So Mm -hmm. there's new, less naive approaches coming out. I think the next six months, we'll see a lot of change. If you were to do this six months from now, it'll be totally different. But if you were to do it every three months for the next couple of years, I think we'd all depend on, we're like, is it a quarter yet? Where's the MLOps community report? Yeah. And that's one thing that we really want to do. I have been thinking about how I want to hire someone to help me write it and sift through the data because just me on my own, it ends up taking four or five months because I work on it on the weekends and burn in midnight oil. And it just turned out to be something that a lot of people resonated with. And then because of that, I got invited to speak at places and I got invited to do different things that I wouldn't necessarily get to do. And it spoke to a different audience, I think, than the devs that are in the MLOps community. It spoke to a few levels above the people that like to read reports and get reports from (laughs) different publications. It's good, right? Because it's also a sign of maturity because you're starting to look at multi-level communication, right? When Mm. you can create a vehicle that people in your community can take to their manager or their manager's manager, you're doing them great good because now they're better understood. Their practices, their habits seem more legitimate. It's easier to create pay scales, right? It's easier to create a sense of seniority. So all this looks like really good signs for the MLOps community and predicts maybe some successful startups in the future as yeah. the practices start to settle and get more predictable. I'm really curious about your take on open source in this environment. So maybe let me start with having built data on Kubernetes as a community in the early days and all the open source that washes around constantly and everything we do in ML. What does open source data mean? To you? When it comes to open source data, it's something you can build your models with and it's something that is for everyone it's like everyone's data and i think not all data can be open source right nor would we want it to be at all and so that's where the rub is because the end state that you're looking for if you go backwards a bit you would want to have the highest quality data but a lot of this data it can't be open source just because of different reasons. Maybe it's PII, maybe it's just regulations, all of that. So 
I think open source data is a very tricky one when it comes to machine learning. And there's a lot of very hard work that you have to do when you think about cleaning the data. And the data prep part needs to be very strong. And so potentially, after it's been through a few washing cycles, then it can be open sourced and all of that. But it's a fascinating one to think about. The size of the data is interesting to think about too, because is it gigabytes or megabytes of data or terabytes? Are you going to be training a model on it? Are you going to be fine-tuning a model on it? Is it just like some rag that you're going to be using, you throw it into a vector database, like how do you look at that in f- as far as size goes? And so open source data is is a tricky one, man. And everyone says, yeah, like the data is the moat now. That's kind of the thing that you hear a lot. Because if everybody's training these large language models, and they're more or less training them at the same level or the same capability, but now you need something to one-up you, or you need something to give you that advantage, it's going to be the data. And it's going to be how you prepare the data and how you clean the data and how, basically how high quality that data is. It's interesting to look at open source data sets that have given rise to biggest and most effective models that we've got today. So I think the rules are still a little unwritten. A common crawl obviously is a great sort of standard foundation for building foundation models on, yeah. but so many more data sets that need to get built. I met a company just started called Nixtla, N-I-X-T-L-A, and mm-hmm. they're building a transformer model based on not language, but on time series data. Oh, so that kind of, it's extraordinary to think about how do you prompt a time series transformer? What kind of outputs could you get? Yeah. Is it able to do predictions on trends effectively? What does it know? But the first thing that they're stepping in to say is we're going to build an open source data set so that anybody who wants to build a transform on time series can, because they said that was the major obstacle in being able to build something big enough is like, can you build a 500 billion parameter time series transformer? Well, you need a lot more data to fit in there. So everything is changing. What do you see in open source AI models, whether you're looking at LLMs, things like Llama, Llama 2 just dropped, of course, with its much more open use. UAE just open-sourced Falcon, with Falcon 40B being, to date, the best-performing open-source model. What are you seeing out there and what's changing for you? Well, I think the first thing that is probably the most interesting when it comes to all of the different models that are out there is the way that people are evaluating them against their use case. And I think that's probably, in my world, the hottest topic and it's all about evaluation right now and how do you recognize which model is best for my use case but not just looking at it on a model level also looking at it on like a full systems level how small can i go without actually like destroying everything and which one of these models is it the llama model is it falcon whatever it may be which models are giving me the least amount of toxicity. And for this use case, maybe this model works really well. But for another use case, a different model works. So I love the innovation that's coming out of the open source world when it comes to the different models. And what I think is a little bit disheartening is that they're not at all 
as good. And a lot of people say yet as OpenAI. And I guess that's the big assumption is that eventually it will be. I know a lot of people are like, oh, it's just six months behind. But GPT 3.5 came out, I don't know how long ago. It was definitely like six months ago. And I don't know if there's an open source model that is as good as chat GPT. And so I think we're going to need a little bit more work. And also the architecture of GPT-4, right? It's gigantic. It's a lot of smaller models. And so figuring that out in the open source world is going to be interesting. And I don't know if I've seen that the community of researchers slash engineers are doing enough in that field. I question it. I'm not quite sure that it's going to happen. I hope that it happens. And I really want it to happen. But I also wonder if it will. Ultimately, I think it's going to be the commercial pressures that cause more open source development in models. Because most companies don't want to write their business processes as a thin layer over GPT. They want to be able to run meaningful models on their data. They want to start with that bootstrap of having a reasonably good foundation model that they can fine tune and they can build into an AI architecture. So I think that's going to be where we find this sort of positive sum game between companies trying to figure out how do they get some kind of economic advantage, how do they provide a better experience for the users, and how do they benefit from research? Well, they're going to have to put money into research because otherwise these incredibly hard mathematical problems won't get dug into. Here's one of my Mm. favorite outages is we don't really have a great system for sharing improvements to models the way that we can share improvements to code. Yeah, I've got a friend who says that's all where LoRa's are going to be like the patches of software development. And that may be true, but where is the get for LoRa's, right? If that is actually the quantum of optimization or patching or changing. We're still much more in like hugging face feels a lot more like SourceForge than it feels like GitHub. Yeah, it feels yeah, like it's open exactly. source models, but it's download site. And the way that mm-hmm. we're doing versioning is sort of gross monolithic versions, much more like a old school CVS than a Git. So there's some yeah. new practice that's going to come up maybe in the next six months or year or maybe two years. I don't know what it looks like because I'm not a practitioner in that space. But something will happen where the quantum of work gets fit more precisely. Some tool or tools are going to emerge. And then we'll probably see the kind of acceleration that we need in open source. Because remember, Linux once didn't even have proper POSIX support. (laughs) And now Linux is Unix. So these things do have a habit of getting better over time when companies realize, oh my gosh, I can use this stuff and I don't have to hold to like the one master provider because everybody ultimately wants agency. There's so many roads that we could take on that just on the idea of Git for models. I'm fascinated by that because there's no middleware or Red Hat provider of these models. So if you're a company and you're thinking, all right, we're going to go with Falcon 7B or 40B, but then you build everything for that. And in six months, there's a whole new model that you need to implement. But what if you like what you have with Falcon 40B and you want to keep it going, but it's been completely depreciated or nobody cares about that anymore. There's no community around that. And so where's the red hat that's going to say, we will guarantee that the next 10 years, Falcon 40B is going to work. 
And yeah. it will work because we put our weight behind it. Our devs will make sure that it works. And we're going to create those LoRa's that are patches. And if you find any toxicity that it spews out, then just let us know and boom, instantly you can add that. And so that's an f- incredible piece that I think there is a lot of scope for development. The other thing though, is when you were mentioning something before that about how open source ultimately, it feels like open source comes and it does what it needs to do. The community rallies and it is able to create really strong, resilient products. What I think is, it's not to like instill fear in anyone, but what I wonder is, it feels like people are much more cagey. In 2017, everyone was sharing everything about their models. When the papers came out, it was no holes bar. You would say everything that you could. Um, and then Transformers became this thing because of the paper that came out of Google, right? And then OpenAI took it and they made a ton of money off of it. And then there was this narrative like, oh, OpenAI, ChatGPT is going to kill search. And so now what I've heard from people at Google is the research teams aren't as open to sharing everything in their papers anymore. And if you look at the OpenAI papers, it's like laughable. They don't really share anything about what they're actually doing on the really hard parts. And so you don't have that openness. And that means that you do definitely need the researchers and the community to be more almost as like, the pendulum has to swing the other way because these big companies, they kind of want it all for themselves. I think to everyone's great surprise, mine included, Meta ends up being maybe (laughs) not the hero we wanted, but the hero we needed in creating not just Llama, but paying close attention. Llama 2 released with much more liberal licensing. So again, there's an economic outcome for them, much like there is an economic outcome for Red Hat shepherding and making sure that all of the open source releases that they provided that were built on the Linux kernel could work over time. We will see those. Also, just a historical note, 1992, Linux creates Linux. 1993, Red Hat's founded, right? So the company that we're talking about is probably being founded in 2023. So there's hope ahead. So it's been an amazing conversation so far. One of the things that I was asked a while ago by Corey Quinn was, what questions should you have been asked? at any time when you were interviewed, but nobody asked you any topic? I don't know if I necessarily have an answer to these, but I wish we talked more about things. We went deeper down, just like, what are we doing here? What is life all about? And that kind of stuff doesn't get asked enough because I think we have our fixed conversation topics. And I know being a podcast host, I understand completely that in my podcast, I wouldn't necessarily ask each guest in the grand scheme of things, like, what are we actually doing on this rock? And I think it's a little bit out of left field, but I would love to be asked that sometime and just go and pontificate on it for a few minutes. Not that, again, I have no answers or no clear idea, but it's always fun to talk about those deeper things in life. And there's magic of dialogue, right? We start to explore what's possible, have new thoughts that were previously unthinkable without another human mm. being going back and forth with us in a way that shows that they're actually paying attention. Yeah, it's exactly right. 
the amount that we get to learn by just sharing ideas and coming away from a conversation enriched as opposed to depleted. That's the beauty of it. That's the magic, man. That's the magic. It's been awesome to have you on. I've been wanting to get a chance to chat with you and meet with you for quite a long time. And I know you have a fairly well-served community that you've built for the open source data community who we're bringing you into. I know they're already looking into LLMs and maybe curious about ML, maybe strong ML practitioners. We have a fairly wide range. What's one piece of advice that you'd want to give our audience, right? As people are trying to figure out what 2023 looks like and what they ought to be doing. I think there's just so much noise out there and it's really hard to see where there's that signal. And so being able to follow people like yourself who cut through the noise is huge. I would really try and ground myself and think about what is realistic with this, but not let that kill your high of LLMs, right? I'm all for, let's be real about this. Let's try to actually see what is possible and what is not and question all of the stuff that you're seeing. And so whatever your technological forte is, I encourage you to do that and go down the rabbit holes, see how real they are. And obviously, like I'm sure you've already started playing with AI. That's the best part about it is that it's so easily accessible and a lot of people are playing with it. And maybe you can bring it into whatever it is you're doing. The world will thank you if you're a little bit more realistic in the AI space. And that's not to say don't take the moonshots, but that's my piece. Yeah, that makes sense. It's never been easier to learn to code. It's never been easier to learn to pick up a new technology. And so prototyping helps you avoid so much confusion and indirection, learning for yourself, as you're pointing out. Just get your hands yeah. on it. Download VS yeah. Code, pip install OpenAI, get Langchain, get Llama Index. Yeah. It's not going to take that long. Get your Jupyter Notebook out. Even if you never used one before, it'll take you less than an hour. Uh, like you'll figure it out. Yeah, and you'll have fun doing it. Well, Dimitris, it's been awesome to get a chance to chat with you. Really appreciate your time. And I appreciate what you've built in the MLOps community. It's a thing of beauty. It's an absolute honor to be on here. I am super excited that this happened. I know we have so many mutual friends. So I know you are doing such great work inspiring the masses. And yeah, it's incredible that you would have me on here. So thank you so much, Sam. Thank you. I'm backstage with our executive producer, Audra Montenegro, to cover her takeaways from the conversation. Audra, I thought that conversation with Dimitros was really fun. He's super connected into his community, understands the history and sort of the evolution of practice. So I was very hopeful for what we're going to see in the next few years as people start to get used to not just MLOps, but LLMs. What stood out for you? I love how he posed the question, what is an MLOps engineer anyway, right? Because with respect to other roles, there's so many facets and he talked about moving laterally within a company and how that could be super beneficial to what will eventually be laid out as that MLOP role in the future. 
So how we get empathy and risk for other roles is obviously a key benefit to moving laterally with the company anyway. But then what else stood out to me was talking about the use cases. So specifically, he brought up prompting a human to remember or think about something. So an LLM coach, so to speak. And then also getting a manager briefed or up to speed on a project. So you're not taking up a developer's time when they could be spending those key moments developing even more and iterating on something. So it all goes back to augmenting humans. And I can't wait to hear more about the use cases and the data and how do you measure if an LLM is successful. And we kind of ended on a note that could lead into a conversation in the future, which was the standards of an LLM. How do you know it's ready to release? So do your research with his advice and cut through all the noise if you can. It might be a good panel session for us later on because the field of practice is moving really quickly and what's called the eval problem. Can you evaluate whether or not variants on the LLM prompts are improving or worsening? How is it changing? How are we dealing with the clamping problem? So it's a very fast moving space. Might be a great panel conversation. Yeah, good idea. Well, thanks to our audience for listening to us. As always, we appreciate your loyalty. And if you like the show, please subscribe and give the podcast a five-star rating on your favorite platform. And a special thanks to the Caspian Studios team, our producer, Alexa Minter, for program management, Vidam Yuri and Kyle Ruska, for audio and visual engineering, Callan Turnbull and Yaroslav Zukarchenko, as well as creative producer, Landon Pontius. And a huge thanks, of course, to Datastax for sponsoring the show been excited about data for a long time, and now they are building vector search engines, vector databases, and becoming a platform for real-time AI. Thanks again for listening. Catch you on the next episode of Open Source Data. <laughs>